It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Aaron Abrams. Aaron is director of product for Marin Bicycles, and he's currently based in Taiwan. The Marin bike brand has been around since 1986, and the company's slogan says their bikes are, quote, made for fun. We're going to have some fun today, aren't we, Aaron? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good times. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me here. Well, so tell us a bit about your background. How did you get involved in the bike industry? Yeah. So as you said, you know, right now I'm the director of product for Marin Bikes. Um, I've been in this role for uh, probably five, four or five years at this point and been with Marin Bikes for almost nine years, uh, going on nine years this summer. Uh, my initial start in bikes was basically as, as a child. So my father started a bike shop in Southern Arizona in 1976. And then I was born uh, about six years later and grew up in that bike shop. So independent bicycle retailer and, uh, you know, kind of in the boom of mountain bikes, really. So, you know, I was basically born at the time that mountain bikes started. And, uh, by the time I was in the shop, you know, eating ball bearings and chewing on inner tubes, it was, uh, like the heyday, you know, going into the early nineties and then into the the nineties into the two thousands with all the, the crazy suspension types, all that stuff. So I was a pretty voracious student of, uh, of bikes and, and, you know, like I said, at that time, mountain bikes, and we were riding a lot of bikes at that time in the, in the mountains too. Um, so fast forward a little bit, I went off to university and figured I would uh, be a lawyer or something and that bikes mm-hmm. were behind me. And, uh, I had got into a shop, uh, after kind of exhausting my savings, I ended up getting into a shop, uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona that was full of a bunch of great people and just really reignited my passion around bikes. And I think a big part of that was also more of kind of the counterculture of, of bikes and some of the different ways that people are using them and, and bikes is more fun and less serious, you know, not mm-hmm. just about doing a triathlon or being the fastest, you know, KOMs and stuff, but, uh, just having a good time on bikes and hanging out with people, riding bikes and socially. So that, you know, like, so that kind of got me reignited. And then around the time I was finishing school, uh, my dad had been, uh, moving on to some commercial real estate and he was shutting down the bike shop and, uh, basically told me if you, if you want it, it's yours. If not, you know, this kind of family business that's, that's been with us for more than, you know, more than 30 years at that point is just going to mm-hmm. cool off and basically, you know, shut down because it was hard to find good help in a small town. Mm. So I felt like I wasn't doing enough. So I went back and took over the shop and um, did that for a couple of years and then ended up getting into specialized as a product developer. Okay. So moving from, uh, kind of by accident, really, I just found a cool job posting that I thought was was great um, and kind of checked every box for me and applied to it and ended up getting it. So uh, then in 2000, late 2008, or I uh, actually, sorry, middle 2008, I moved out to California and joined Specialized. 
and was with them for five years being a product developer and later the uh, product manager for a brand, a sub brand called Globe that was doing a lot of city urban stuff. Okay. Uh, from that point, I bounced over to Marin. They needed a product manager for city urban and uh, I was super interested in being a part of this, this great, you know, storied brand that was ready to mm-hmm. bounce back into the world and, you know, start a new team and, and get a fresh new, fresh new life. So yeah. that's, that's the project for the last know, more than eight years at this point is, <laughs> is trying to, trying to resurrect Marin and, and, uh, yeah, keep it fun and keep it interesting. Yeah. How long have you been in Taiwan and, and what are you doing there? Why, why do you need to be in Taiwan uh, for your job? So I've lived in Taiwan two different times. So I lived here for Specialized in 2009 to 2011, and I was working on development. And that Globe brand I mentioned, that was a a pretty big and hurried project, let's say. It was pushed forward pretty fast. So at that time, I came over here to work on the development of everything and just try to fast track it. Um, And I signed up for staying for a while to try to basically implement more of that inside of their um, their team here and and internationally mm-hmm. so it worked out pretty well and then ended up being stationed back in the us and then for marin the reason i'm here is uh we needed to get an office built and start moving on some of our basically development and r&d as well mm-hmm. so you know started over here in October of 2019 and um, have gotten a team together with some engineers and some project managers. And it turns out that it's been just a a super good time to be here Mm. because obviously travel is limited. And if you don't have a visa here, you can't come here. And Taiwan is, is the the heart of the bicycle industry in the whole world. Right. So with the, um, a lot of the suppliers are here and even if parts are made in other places like China or Southeast Asia, a lot of the headquarters and the development centers are here in Taiwan. Right. So it's been very good. Even, you know, like we expected to have some good benefit for putting up an office here, but mm-hmm. yeah, the, the immediate benefit of it and all of the great stuff we've been able to accomplish in the last couple of years has been, has been fantastic. Yeah. That's really interesting. Well, kind of the, the reason we're going to be talking, the main thing we're going to be talking about is how bikes are specced. And I want to start us off by using one of the Marin bikes, the Marin Rift Zone 29, as an example. And so this is a bike that's on the Marin website, at least for U.S. customers. I assume maybe the builds kind of vary depending on what market you're in. But for U.S. buyers, there are three builds of this bike. And the prices range from like $2,000 to about $3,000. And this is a full suspension bike. So when we're planning out the builds for a bike like this do you start with like a set of three price targets and then choose the best parts that make those prices work or or what's what's kind of the basis for figuring out how those three builds look so the the ripson project is an interesting one because it i guess the best way to describe it is that bike has been just huge for us because we build it in a very specific way so hmm. um our goal with the the Rift Zone, the, especially the entry level version, the Rift Zone one is to provide everything you need to have a real, true, great mountain bike experience. Okay. So the goal is give you a great platform that's upgradable, give you the parts that you need to really perform on the trail in a, in a good way. Mm-hmm. So 
that bike is very much driven by what's what's required of it to meet that goal. And then the price tiers above that base bike are based on, again, you know, what, what can you add to that to make it a more valuable bike or a better experience for the trail rider. Hmm. So there are different bikes where either us or, you know, or other brands would look at them based on a, a price point where you mm-hmm. basically start with a price point and work backwards. Mm-hmm. There's brands out there that only do that, you know, that they're, they're really mm-hmm. kind of price oriented and there's, there's not a lot of, of meat behind that. Yeah. Um, as far as the frame development and geometries and, and, you know, customized development of the, of the bike. Mm-hmm. But like I said, that, that rift zone, it started by seeing that there was a great uh, opportunity to bring a, a, great full suspension bike below where we were seeing it on the market. Yeah. And the reason for that is a lot of big brands are not interested to bring their bikes down that, that level Mm -hmm. for them. If they keep them a little bit higher, maybe the profit margins a bit higher, or if they're really, you know, race oriented brand, you know, they might have some feeling like, you know, moving to things like a steel stanchion on a suspension fork or going down below a 12 speed drivetrain is, is things that they're, they're just not interested in for their brand image. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from the Marin side, you know, we, we are more interested in the product performance and the way that the bike rides and really, I guess, you know, it sounds a little silly, but democratizing mountain biking, <laughs> just letting more, more people have what we consider to be, you know, the, the great mountain experience on a bike, whether your price points there, um, you know, whether your wallet's there or not. And then, you know, just being able to um, really highlight that as as kind of a core value for Marin. So mm-hmm. a lot of things for Marin have actually grown from that rift zone. So like our, our made for fun mantra mm-hmm. um, and the kind of a lot of our, our perception in the market. And if you follow a lot of our social media and our, our kind of rider groups, mm-hmm. they've really taken to that bike. And it's it's done a lot of what we you know, hoped it would and, and just kind of build a, a foundation for the rest of the company for values and, and the way that we, you know, build bikes, spec bikes and, and, you know, present ourselves to our, our riders. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I'm learning a lot here. So, I mean, I guess it makes sense that you could, you could do one of two things. You could start with like some price targets in mind, or you could start with specs in mind with like, like you do with the Rift Zone where, you have a certain level of performance that you want and you kind of work from there. It's also interesting that you are starting kind of with the lowest spec one and then kind of seeing how you can improve it, which, yeah, I guess, I, I mean, is that how other brands do it as well? Do they sometimes maybe start at the high end and then go down? Does that ever make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like I was saying um, a lot of brands do start at the top and and move their way down, and they're more, you know, what you'd consider more entry level or price point bikes are really just kind of thrown together, let's say. Mm, yeah. So, you know, my my opinion as somebody who's been specking bikes for for quite a long time is it's really easy to spec a high end bike, right? So, you know, whatever the latest <laughs> thing is from the suspension supplier, whatever the latest thing is from the drivetrain supplier. And then, yeah, there's, there's your bike. Right. But to spec a really good bike at an entry level price point or, or mid level stuff, that's where it gets really creative and Mm -hmm. being able to look at the components, both from a, from a name brand, uh, situation, but also as, as really thoroughly as a value proposition. So 
for instance, let's say like wide range one by drivetrains, um, that's something that we've been very adamant about for a long time mm-hmm. and looking at how to get a, a wide range drivetrain onto as many bikes as possible in that, that one by, uh, type of group. So, um, when one by stuff first came out, it was all SRAM, you know, it was all their, their first generation of stuff. And then there was a lot of hacks being done with people bringing out, you know, the ability to put on an extra chain ring or a, a extra cog on the cassette, uh, change your crank to be a one by, you know, there's all these hodgepodge things going on to achieve yeah. essentially a budget way to get in there as a one by. But then there's all these other groups like Microshift, uh, bringing out really good groups in the last few years. So. Mm-hmm. Basically, we, we put together some bikes in the, in the midterm that did all of that. You know, we, we did some creative spec of, of, you know, existing SRAM 10 speed derailers and a 10 speed shifter and a one by and, and this cassette from this guy. And, you know, it's super functional, but mm-hmm. not yeah. like a grouped, a grouped spec, like, uh, yeah. like you might see on some other stuff and worked out very well. And, you know, we, we test everything to make sure that we can stand behind it before we put it out. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, basically our vision of, of where we see, you know, this type of bike and this type of, of riding, it, you know, it turns out that it's actually what people want. And, and now there's really good groups for that. So we're able to bring that down, um, even further downstream into like the nine speed and, and sometimes into eight speed with, with that type of thing. So, you know, again, looking at it more like, like value and riding style rather than strictly a, a spreadsheet. You know, we can, we can build bikes in a spreadsheet and just, you know, bean count and look at every penny. And you can, you know, as, as somebody who specs bikes, I can look and, and see how somebody did that, like what they did to build that bike that way. And, you know, it makes sense if you're just looking at it from a, like a robot way. But <laughs> when you're looking at it as a, a value and what's really going to give you the best ride, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's a, that's a whole different kind of lens to put on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do you know that? Do you do a lot of like component testing? I mean, are you a big rider who's like always trying new stuff and you're like, okay, this is, this is good. This is not good. Or, or how do you, do you use your athletes? Like, how do you know what those, those good parts are that people are going to like and they're going to ride well? Yeah. All of, all of the above. So, you know, we ride what we make, you know, that's, that's just, in, in my opinion, you have to, you know, we got to get out and, and use our bikes. We, we also have to try competitive, uh, competitor stuff. Mm-hmm. So we got to go and ride a, a bike from somebody else. And especially, you know, we all can look at like your, your site and, and a few other sites out there and get some kind of opinions, you know, from riders, you know, mostly from journalists who are riding. Um, obviously comment sections in certain places. Um, you know, looking at, at, what people are saying and, and what the general uptake is mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Um, so that helps, but testing the stuff, like, you know, if we're talking about parts, drivetrains, all that stuff. Yeah. We are always testing things. So mm. there's a continuous stream of stuff that needs to be tested. And, um, you know, there's, there's two product managers at Marin. So, uh, we ride all the stuff that we can. Mm-hmm. And then we've got quite a few people inside of the company in our various global offices that we also have ride stuff and, and test stuff for us. Okay. Uh, and then we've also athletes are, are big for some of that, you know, with athletes, it's, it's more difficult because they usually have contracts or, or sponsorships that right. kind of push them in one way or another for what they're supposed to be seen using. Mm-hmm. And then also with athletes, you know, the, 
it just depends on who they are and, and how they're able to, you know, form the thought about what, you know, how they're able to form the feedback. Yeah. You know, a lot of athletes are more focused on their speed and their, their time and their riding, you know, things more like their personal performance, like their body performance, let's say. Mm-hmm. Whereas like component performance, if it works, then, then it's fine. You know, and after that, it's like, well, it just worked. And, you know, I was focusing on my other um, <laughs> goals. Mm-hmm. So, but then, then there's other ones and you see them sometimes like, uh, like especially a lot of athletes who had, have been at a high level and are taking a step back for, you know, family or age or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're able to articulate, um, some really good feedback and they're able to bring in more, yeah, more good quality feedback, more analytical, um, feedback. So those, those guys are rare. Guys and gals are rare, mm-hmm. but very helpful when, when you have, uh, people like that that you can work with. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting just imagining the testing and the things you have to do to validate various component choices. I mean, part of it is just, is it a good product? But I imagine there's like so many things you have to think about. Like, should we put a 2.4 inch tire or 2.5? Like, what do people want? And, you know, that, like my own preference is one thing and, you know, but buyers are going to want another thing. I mean, it seems like seems like you got a lot of competing kind of data points out there and, and you got to ultimately you have to make a decision on those. Is that, does it get like overwhelming or is it kind of like you just make changes a little bit at a time and you're not like constantly kind of trying to reinvent the bike every season or whatever? Yeah, I would say a lot of it is iterative. Hmm. So we're making changes on things and, you know, there's some new product and we test it and we're interested in it. You know, timing has to be right. You know, there's plenty of times where we get introduced to something that we just love, but we don't have a place to put it for a model year or two or or three sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, so it's not overwhelming. I wouldn't say it's 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 a consistent part of the process. Yeah, and it's always it's always there, and it's always something that we are. Yeah, it's it's a big part of the job. I would say so. Mm. I think personally, I find it super interesting, and you know, the the differences can be. You know, to some can be splitting hairs, but to us that, you know, it's the difference between a, a great review on a website and a, a good review or, mm-hmm. or when we have dealers come to us and they say, Hey, I really appreciate that spec. Um, you know, the other bikes I'm working on from other brands, they take longer for us to assemble or we just don't feel as comfortable with the finished product or something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when it, when it's, when it's seen and received, you know, and it goes the way that we hope it does, then that's, that's great. And of course, you know, there's, there's stuff that we get really passionate about and get behind, um, and put out into the, into the market. And it doesn't, it doesn't have the reaction that we expect, but Mm -hmm. I would say that that's quite rare, you know, between, between us being riders and having long-term experience and then, you know, a lot of friends and a lot of contacts that we look to, to understand what the current kind of perception and situation is with stuff. And, and then the connection that we have with a lot of our dealers, it's, it's pretty rare that we have a flat miss, but <laughs> yeah, I won't say that it hasn't happened in my career. Right. Right. Yeah. Has to happen at least every now and then. Well, so one of the numbers, you know, we talked about price, um, with bike builds, that's kind of a number that people focus on and you can kind of boil down a lot of things to that, that number. Another number that maybe people aren't as, focused on these days, but, you know, maybe at one time where was the overall bike weight 
And we get this question all the time, like when we're testing a bike, how much does it weigh, you know? And, and there are obviously so many factors that go into that, the size of the frame, um, and then obviously the components on it. And then what we hear, a lot of mountain bikers seem to suspect that brands are specking certain parts to get the bike's weight under a certain level. Does that happen much where you're like, oh, we got to get this thing under 35 pounds. And so we're going to, we're going to put those thin walled tires on there to, you know, shave a few grams. Is that, is that something that happens? Is that a concern at all? Uh, so I have a lot of experience um, through both my past employers, current employers, and then knowing other people mm -hmm. uh, in the industry. And I would say that, yeah, it, it absolutely happens. Hmm. However, it depends on the bike. It depends on the category. Um, it depends on the way that it's going. And then, you know, we're in kind of a, not kind of, we're in a very special situation right now with the availability of stuff. So for the, our ability to keep bikes moving, to keep them coming out and, and keep riders on bikes, um, there've been just all kinds of, of, uh, running changes to bikes just to keep the thing moving. Yeah. So if we take out like this special situation right now, you know, weight, weight is a funny one because, you know, when I was a kid or, or, you know, all the way up until recently, it was like 25 pounds was, was the mm -hmm. kind of the weight. Like if you were under 25 pounds, you got a light bike. If it was 25 pounds, you had a, you had a decent bike and anything more than that, you're riding on some cheap bike or, or you're, you're, you know, like a nut with a big long suspension fork or something. <laughs> but now there's a lot of things that have increased the weight of bikes that, I mean, we could, we could go into easily, but mm -hmm. bikes are heavier than ever, but they're also better performing. And the features that people are accepting this increased weight from are very legitimately beneficial, like a dropper post, let's say, yeah, um, or a larger volume tire, a wider rim, all of that stuff. So mm -hmm. things that we would look at as um, being some of the best developments in mountain biking in the last, you know, 10 years, they all come at a weight penalty. And the days of like, oh, well, we'll just make the frame out of carbon and we'll do this and that. Like that's, you can buy all of those things and, you know, you can get up to a $15,000 bike and it's still going to be, you know, 28, 29, 30 pounds with all the right stuff on it. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I, I guess, I guess weight is, is, it depends on the rider and what they're looking for. And if their goal is a lightweight cross country bike, mm -hmm. then um, it's certainly attainable. But you also have to think, you know, I guess, I guess from a spec management standpoint, the very most difficult thing to, to consider or, or to do anything about is regional differences for riders. Mm -hmm. So like I'm from Arizona and you couldn't ride a thinner tire there. You couldn't ride anything <laughs> without some kind of a sealant or yeah. um, something that keeps the, you know, make sure that the, all the thorns and everything going into the tires were good. You know, so like, you know, even as, as in the days of everything being really light, like we were always riding heavier casing tires and we were always using, you know, either, you know, pre, pre tubeless, we were using, uh, thorn resistant inner tubes sometimes or mm -hmm. filling lightweight tubes with slime and, or, you know, or if you felt like you could ride light, you could just carry a couple spares. But, you know, when we compare that to like Pacific Northwest or the Midwest or you get over to the East, like not only like bike spec in general, but specifically tires is yeah. there's just no way to, have one tire that works for everything for everybody. Mm. 
So there's always going to be what some people would consider to be a concession or a weird spec, but it's based on their region and their riding style and, and you know, what's common there uh, versus somewhere else where somebody might think like, Oh wow, they just knocked it out of the park. Like this is just the best thing that could have come on this bike. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. It makes sense too, that like only certain styles of bikes, like an XC bike where obviously the goal is to get the weight as low as possible you know, those, those types of decisions are going to be more common where you are choosing things that are as light as possible. And the buyers of those bikes, they, I'm sure they're understanding because they have the same goal and they're like, yeah, I'll run those thinner tires if I can get away with them because it's going to save some weight. Um, but then, you know, for most of us who are buying like trail bikes or even enduro bikes, you know, it sounds like that's less common and it's not, it's not something that's being done. I mean, how much weight can you really save with a tire change? You know, I mean, you get a different, huge, different casing on a tire. You're not saving a pound even probably I'm guessing. I don't know. Maybe close to a pound. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it depends on which, it depends on what you're comparing it to. But if you're comparing something like what we would spec on a, on a E mountain bike now, mm-hmm. uh, versus a cross country bike, like it's well over a pound a tire. Okay. You know, we're talking about using basically downhill casing and more sticky tread and, and a bigger volume, you know, like a 2.6 or a 27.5 by 2.8. Mm-hmm. Um, and comparing those to what we would put on a, let's say our team Marin, like our more, um, XC trail oriented bike, like there's, there's a huge difference there. Hmm. So, and it's, and it's rotational mass as well, which, which obviously is really big, but we're seeing that on, you know, like E, e mountain bikes are their own beast, but <laughs> on like enduro stuff, you know, a lot of the enduro riders and if they're in a, a place with a lot of roots and rocks and things, they're, they're specking really early tires as well. Hmm. So that's, that's a pretty big change in the last few years is people being aware and willing to you know bump up the tire weight and the construction and all of that a lot to avoid punctures and issues but also um the ride style of a lot of those tires you know there there's more tire development going on where they're bringing those technologies that were developed specifically for downhill or or really mm-hmm. free ride let's say and they're bringing that into a uh, trail tread application and trail style. And then they're doing a bit more of like a hybrid approach where they're beefing up the, the sidewalls, but leaving the top of the tire more supple, you know, things. So like for cornering performance and, and all of that, having a more stiff sidewall and that engagement and being able to run a, a lower pressure where you get, you know, excellent, uh, attraction. So, I mean, tires, tires are one of the, yeah, you can go so deep in them. And, and I would say, and always, always has been the case that tires make a huge difference on a bike. And, um, yeah, if you're looking at an upgrade, getting the right set of tires on the bike, that's a great upgrade. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you hit it, if you hit it right for the tread and the casing and all the, the details that are perfect for your area, like that's, yeah, there's not much you can do better for your bike than that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I want to talk more about, uh, some key upgrades, um, a little bit later. First, I wanted to ask about the branded parts, uh, house branded components like bars and saddles and stems. This seem to be fairly common from most bike brands. Uh, they're going to have some level of, of house branded components on their bikes. Is What's the idea behind that? Is it cost savings? Are those parts going to cost a lot less and, and let you bring in 
overall build price a bit lower if you stick with those kinds of uh, house branded parts? Yeah. So house branded parts, um, there's some variety there. There's some different ways to look and think about stuff and depends on the bike brand a lot of times as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the general situation is there's not that many companies that make a lot of different things inside of the bike industry. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that have name brands on them that are made by other companies that have name brands on them. Right. So from a, a spec perspective, you know, like as a, as a product manager, if we rewind to, uh, like the two thousands and you were seeing quite a bit of name brand stuff on bikes as spec, mm -hmm. a lot of times those, those companies were doing the work, you know, they're going to the, the handlebar and stem and seat post maker and they're, um, taking either a, a open model design or designing something specifically. Um, they're, they're putting their name on it. They're putting their, you know, their brand behind it. And they're selling that OE to a brand and they're assembling the bike with that. So OE means original equipment. And so that was a, a pretty common style, you know, in a long time ago. Yeah. And then essentially as bike companies grew and as the, their ability to do more and invest more in, in people and, and their products has grown. Um, that's a lot of work that we can do ourselves now. So we have the same contacts, we have the same suppliers, and uh, we can do a lot of that work. And it essentially means that we're cutting out the middleman. Uh, we're making the parts that we want to have, you know, whether it's a bend on a bar or an extension on a stem or this or that. Um, we're making those parts and we're putting them on our bikes and then we make the decision whether we brand it or not. Mm. So like from the Marin perspective, uh, we don't like to brand anything that we don't put product development energy into. And so if, if you see our name on something, it's something that we're willing to stand behind rather than, you know, something that's not labeled. I mean, we're, we, <laughs> I should say we're, we're willing to stand behind everything we put on a bike, but as far as something that we want to have attributed to us as, as having made or developed. Yeah. So it does cut out cost and it does make it so that we can offer a, a better bike to the, to the rider than, um, if everything was name brand on it. Mm -hmm. So then looking at those, those component companies, they've changed a lot since then as well. So like, uh, you know, a lot of the name brand component groups that we know of, they used to put a lot of their, a lot of money in their pocket from the OE side oh, okay. and they could do huge volume and they, you know, they were making a little bit on everything, but they were making a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so since the OE thing has dried up for most of them, they've gone into more of a aftermarket, we would say direct focus. So mm -hmm. when they expect that they're selling their components directly to a, a consumer rather than to like a Marin bikes where we would put it on ours. So they've changed a lot to really focus on things from that aftermarket perspective and really doing product development and, um, you know, trying to innovate on, on different categories, different stuff. Yeah. So it's changed a lot of their business. It's, um, it's, changed on a lot of our side as as the bike brands but it also means that we can develop stuff specifically for our bikes and we're not tied or handcuffed to any other brands or waiting waiting around for them to do something or you know just feel like oh we can't get exactly what we need so that's that's a pretty big change in in the way that bikes have been specced and change in the way that a lot of these companies operate as well but it's been that way for a long time 
so like on our side, like we will spec things that have other, you know, from, from other, um, suppliers mm -hmm. and we'll spec them where they work well and where they make sense on our bikes. But, you know, if it's something that we can do ourselves, it's going to have to have a pretty big, uh, reason to be on there from a brand perspective and a product perspective. Cause otherwise we don't need to spend that money and we don't need to ask our, you know, ask our riders to spend that money either. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause right. I mean, as a consumer myself, I just assume it's mostly about cost cutting, but it, it also makes sense that you're able to customize and kind of get exactly the product that you want. Um, if you are working directly with the manufacturer, say on a handlebar or a stem or, or something like that, I noticed that Marin actually recently started selling branded aftermarket parts like grips and bars and stems. What was the idea behind that, behind like actually going out and letting people buy these uh, not as part of a Marin bike? So, um, that one's a, a couple, one, a couple of reasons, you know, the, the first and biggest reason is just listening to our riders and, and, you know, watching the emails or the, the comments come in about stuff and things like grips and, and, uh, and all are, they're what we would call consumables. You know, they're, they're stuff that you wear out over time. So it's pretty regular for us to get, um, requests like I want to replace the grips on my bike or I, you know, mm -hmm. this handlebar is cool. I wish I could get it for my other bike. Or I saw this on your website and I already have a bike I love, but I wish I could buy this from you. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest push for us. And then the second side is where we are spending time and energy making these components. And, um, you know, we want to be able to have people get them, yeah. you know, just seeing it on a bike. Like you, you shouldn't have to buy a whole bike to get a pair of grips. <laughs> Right. No, we, we think our grips are that good, but, um, we, we realized that that's not a, uh, not, not a real situation. Yeah. I saw like that handlebar, that handlebar you guys have for like bike packing. That was really unique looking. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've seen something sort of like that, but not exactly. And it's like, you know, obviously you guys are looking around, you see what's out there and you're trying to solve a problem. And you did that for, I imagine one of your bike builds you're putting together and then, yeah, other people like me see it and we're like, oh, that's kind of cool. I'd put that on my hardtail or whatever. Yeah, 100%. So that, that, uh, the other part of our, um, aftermarket stuff is almost all of it is stuff that we built specifically to be on our bikes. Mm -hmm. So like that bar was specifically made for our Pine Mountain, mm -hmm. uh, which is our steel, uh, bikepacking 29 or hardtail. And, you know, that bar has got a lot of great features specifically for bikepacking, but then it's also mm -hmm. just cool, cool and interesting looking. Yeah. So yeah, that was, that's definitely that scenario of we made it for the bike. The bike's growing great. It's very well received. Mm -hmm. And then we start getting requests of, Hey, why, why can't I buy this bar? Like I want this bar, give it to me. Yeah. Yeah. So that one, you know, out of that group of stuff, that one is, is definitely one of the ones that we've gotten a lot more, you know, direct feedback from customers about wanting it. And even, you know, same with shops, like shops will come back to us and they'll say, you know, I've got this bike on the floor and, you know, I, um, uh, gotten quite a bit of interest. And if I could buy that handlebar, I would definitely stock it. And yeah, you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> like somebody came in and, and they, they bought the handlebar just off the bike. I don't need another one to replace that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's happened. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's a good problem to have, I guess. So getting back to bike builds, uh, one of the things I'm always curious about is, uh, suspension parts. And so like on a full suspension bike, 
I don't know if I've ever seen. I mean, I'm sure some brands are doing it, but how come the the shock always, almost always matches the fork? Is that some kind of like business arrangement or is there really like performance reasons for why like you want to run a Fox shock with a Fox fork and a rock shocks, et cetera? What's, what's the thinking there? Yeah. So there is some mixing. It's kind of all, everything that you just described. So there <laughs> are some, there are some package deals that some of this, the providers will make. It's not that common. And I, I wouldn't say that that's the main driver. The main driver is kind of almost consumer perception and hmm. um, seeing like this is a bike with rock shocks or this is a bike with Fox or Olean's or, or any of the other groups out there. So, um, the other part is, um, is level. So those, those parts speak the same language as far as, as what level they are. So mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a select rear, um, rear shock. I'm a select fork or factory this, factory that. So it's, it's signals of the level and the performance that are tied. And the other one is kind of market perception. And there's, there's certain places where they prefer one thing over another, or like this one's the champion, that one's. So yeah, that one's, that one's a little more different. Like if you look at an entry level full suspension, you're almost always going to see a different rear shock than the, than the fork. Hmm. And that's because, um, some of the rear shock providers, um, some of them don't go as far down, as far down the line as what we need to spec those bikes at those, at those retail prices. And then the same is, is almost true with forks. Like, uh, like you're not going to see a Fox fork on any bike less than like a thousand bucks, um, or probably 1500 bucks at this point. Um, and they, they just don't bring their brand down that far. They're not interested in it. It's not their, it's not their wheelhouse. They don't have to do it. Um, obviously you can grow a lot of sales by having lower cost products, but there's a lot of performance brands that aren't, aren't interested in that. So suspension definitely falls into the performance side. And, um, a lot of the work that they're doing, like these, these guys are like, if we're looking at, um, the suspension people, um, you know, they're benchmarking the other stuff out there and they're, they are building their stuff to work together you know, the tunability and the style of, of suspension on their rear shocks versus their forks and then the categories that they're serving. So I would say that's, that's all the stuff added in there as to why you, why you don't see them split up that much. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense too. And I mean, I guess I, I never really thought about it. Um, but yeah, it's like for me personally, I, I would want to spend more on the fork and then yeah, not worry too much about the shock. And it sounds like that's part of the thinking there is, is you can get a, a lower cost shock and you're not going to really hurt the performance too much. Um, and then, yeah, spend a little more on the, on the fork. Well, it, you know, I, I would say there's, I, I would say that's probably a common thinking, but rear shock is super important for the overall ride of the bike. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing for the rear shock performance on the bike is to have it tuned properly. Right. So, so there's a, there's internal parts in the shock that are changed during the assembly or, or put in different ways during the assembly of the shock. Mm-hmm. And when we are specking a shock, part of the spec is yes, this is a, this brand and this part number, mm-hmm. but it's custom tuned for our bike. And we spend a lot of time and energy getting that custom tuned for the bike. So, 
one thing that we see a lot in the field is um, people want to upgrade stuff and they'll change their rear shock, but they'll move to something that's got a completely wrong tune oh, right. for the bike. Mm-hmm. So even though you're spending more money and yes, it's a nicer shock and yes, it's got a lot of uh, switches and valves and things to play with. Mm-hmm. If it's not tuned properly for the the kinematic of the bike and the style of the bike, you're definitely not getting the most out of it. Mm. So I think that's, that's poisoned a lot of the perception of rear shocks and how they how you know the benefits that you can get as as you upgrade stuff but if you're working with the good tuning houses and you know you can get the shock done properly for your bike and you know we can even like as marin we occasionally provide people with some of the leverage ratios and things so that they can tailor it more properly yeah that makes a lot of sense that that yeah you're not going to see those benefits if you're if you're upgrading at home because you don't know what went into that that shock that originally came with the bike and how it was tuned. I just thought for me, it's because I can see what the fork is doing. When I'm on the trail, yeah. I know it's working. Like that one works that way. And I can see it in the shock. I have no idea what it's doing most of the time. So we talked earlier about one by drivetrains. You were mentioning that a little bit. And I'm curious why so many entry level, like really low budget bikes still include front derailers. Is, is that because there still aren't these cheaper options for one by drivetrains, uh, or is it because buyers, like true entry level buyers, think that they want a lot of gears and so they value that like three by nine or three by ten or whatever it is they're specking these days? Yeah, it's uh, it's both of those things. So when we get down to the price points of of an entry level mountain bike, and when I say entry level, I mean I mean the the bike level that you would see at a bike shop. There are one by solutions that you can do there, but as you decrease the number of gears, the ability to effectively move the range is drops quite a lot. So, hmm. you know, we, we know, uh, 12 speed, you get a 1051 or a 1052. Right. By the time we get down to like a seven speed, mm-hmm. the widest or even let's say, let's say an eight speed with a custom or a specifically built for one by situation, mm-hmm. um, you're going to be at like an 1136 or an 1146. Yeah. And for a very beginning rider on a, um, an entry level bike, it's, it may not be enough gear range for them. So is it the cassette then that's like expensive? I mean, is that the problem? You can't do a 10 speed cassette and, and that's at that price point. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the cost for sure. And then just the physical limits of those cogs and that chain and also what, what the acceptable gap between a gear is for a rider. You know, so, you know, mountain bikes really changed the whole perception of needing like a really small jump between each gear to, to keep your performance up, which is something that I think road is still struggling with. (laughs) But once you start to, to take, you chop out a bunch of the gears in the middle, then to have that same range, your steps become very large. And it generally means that you're not in the right gear for what you're doing. Like it's, you just don't really always have it. So you might hit a sweet spot and feel great, but, (laughs) but those jumps are pretty big. And, um, so yeah, so that part's really tough. And then the consumer perception is certainly a big one of like, I'm paying more for less. Yeah. You know, like, Oh, this bike's (laughs) got 20, you know, this bike's got 22 gears where this one has 11 and you know, somebody who's not really in the scene and not really understanding it is going to see it as, um, as being a, a problem. And the last part about that is that 
we see people using those bikes for everything. So it, it looks like a mountain bike, just like a, you know, an F-150 looks like a truck, but if you're yeah. driving it on the street all day, every day, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it's turning into a different animal. So we get a lot of people on the entry level mountain bikes that see them as a everything. It's a commuter. It's my weekend fun. It's, uh, I can go riding with the crew if I, if I have the time and they're going. So that's the other part of it is, and especially again, regionally, internationally. Yeah. They're, they're used for quite a bit more than just a, a trail bike. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause yeah, to me and to a lot of, I'm sure our listeners who are used to like a one by drivetrain, it's just, it's maddening. Cause you're like, you're paying for like a front derailleur and a front shifter. Like they could make this entry level bike even cheaper if it didn't have all that extra stuff. And, you know, I assume that a front derailleur is going to be a little more confusing too. I don't know if I would be able to use one these days. I think I forgot, uh-huh. but, uh, yeah, uh, that does make sense though, that you need that range if you are kind of a, a new rider. Yeah. And the range, the range is a scary thing for a lot of riders and for a lot of, you know, a lot of us like specking the bikes for people and, um, and fitness level, you know, like just mm, yeah. the, the amount of, of, uh, like what you can ride when you've been a rider and you understand when you need to put the power in and what gear you need to be in and how to, how to mountain bike. You know, that's, these people are developing those skills. And I, my opinion, my personal opinion is one by is, is fantastic for that because it's eliminating a whole other thing out of the front. Just, just like you said. So, you know, I would, but I, I would also say that at least for us, where we are specking one by, is also, you know, the, the split of where we stop specking one by front and move to a double front. That's also the split of where I would say this bike is capable of, of realistic mountain biking. Like what we know as, as trail riding. Yeah. The other bikes, yes, you can go out and do it. You know, you can, you can take out a 1989 Marin and ride it on mountain bike trails and all that stuff, but we know the difference. So that's, that's more of what like those bikes ride as. With much better geometry, much more modern geometry, yeah. but the suspension performance and the overall level of the bike, like what that's, you know, like I said, that's where I would recommend, like, if you're really interested in mountain biking, that kind of like our Bobcat three, our Bobcat four, like that's where you should really be focusing. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the cash for that and you're, or you're not sure and you want to, you know, just something a little bit more, uh, entry level, then, um, you can go below that and you can still get totally excited about mountain biking and get into the sport. But pretty quickly, you're going to want to jump up to like that, that next level with one buy and a little bit more suspension travel and a little better fork and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we'll talk about some of those entry-level bike upgrades and the challenges involved in offering buyers custom specs. Stay tuned. Are you enjoying the Single Tracks podcast? Well, we could use your support. The small but dedicated Single Tracks team works hard to share the mountain bike information that inspires epic adventures through this podcast, our worldwide database of trail maps and photos, and daily news and reviews on the website. So consider becoming a monthly, annual, or lifetime pro supporter and enjoy ad-free browsing on the website, free single track stickers in the mail, and discounts on merch for as little as $3 per month. Go to singletracks.com support to sign up and to find out other ways you can help support our mission. That's singletracks.com support. Thank you and happy trails. And we're back. 
So Aaron, you started getting into this, um, but I wanted to ask you, what is the first component? Well, I guess we'll say the first component after tires that you would personally upgrade when buying an entry-level mountain bike? Uh, dropper post, for sure. So if, if you're not able to get into a bike with a dropper post, it's a, a fantastic upgrade that'll give you a lot more confidence and a lot more control. And uh, so, yeah, I would, I would definitely put that one in there. You know, we mentioned tires, but um, specifically going tubeless. So a great set of tires and then um, and then bringing the bike into into tubeless setup. Um, so at least for my riding, you know, outside of geometry and, and product nuances, those two things in the last decade or so, I think those have been the biggest peripheral changes, things, things that you can add on to your bike and, and change on your bike pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. Are you able to, I mean, it's, it's always interesting and I'm sure there's like logistical reasons for this, but it seems like most bikes, even if they are capable of, of being tubeless, they're going to ship with tubes in it. Is that just to make sure that like the tires are inflated when the customer gets it or, or is it something else? It, it's a couple of things. So, you know, you need to protect the wheels. So you need to protect the, the wheel of the bike during shipping. So having a tube in there and having the tire inflated, that's, that's protection. Mm-hmm. The other part is, um, a, between the time a bike is assembled and the time a, a rider you know, buys it from a shop or online and gets it on the trail, mm-hmm. you can be talking a year. Oh, wow. So, you know, if, if we say like, we're going to set the thing up tubeless and we're going to put the sealant in it, we're going to do everything at the factory. Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not going to work out that well for the the end consumer. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, so are most of like, are you able to offer the rims like tubeless ready on some of the entry level stuff or is that still like slightly more expensive to get that done? So what we offer is a tubeless ready rim. So depending on the level, there's a certain level that you get to. And at that point you get a tubeless ready rim. Okay. And so what that means is you have to add tape and valves and, um, and you have to have a tubeless tire. And then when we get higher up, we offer a wheel that is a tubeless ready rim. It's pre-taped. Mm-hmm. The tire is tubeless, tubeless compatible. And then um, we put a tube in it again to protect it during the, the shipment. And um, the valves would be in the box. And then you, you basically take out the tubes, put in the valves, buy sealant and, and install the sealant. So, you know, it gives us that ability to have a very close to, to ready situation, but the bike's fully protected. And, you know, the other part is like sealant tends to be, there's, there's again, regional or, or personal choices in sealant. Mm-hmm. And it's also very available at this point. So the ability to, to have that done at the shop as you, as you're picking up your bike or, or do it at home is, is pretty good these days. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good to know too, that about the tires being, you know, I mean, you mentioned before, it's a regional thing as well, where certain tires are going to work better in certain places. And we all have our favorite tire, tire preferences. And so, you know, it sounds like that's one of those things kind of right off the bat, like you may want to change out the tires. That may be the first upgrade for a lot of people. And, and also like, don't stress over the build and be like, Oh, this one comes with this tire and this one comes with a different one. Sounds like that's one of those minor things that we should all just be prepared to, to swap those out right away. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's again, you know, the, if you're new to riding or if you're, if you're growing and riding, 
just, you can talk to a lot of the people around you and on the trail or at the shop and they can give you their kind of hot list of, of the best tires for that region. But yeah, so, you know, my, my first point to people would be like, ride the bike, feel it, check it out, you know, get familiar with your bike. And then when you start to look at making upgrades, you understand what your, uh, what you're getting for your upgrade. Like, you know, your bike, you're, you're comfortable and familiar. You change out, you know, in this case, let's say tires and you see that, that benefit and you can articulate it and, you know, to yourself, you, you get it. And then the next time you make a, a change, you know, you're already more educated than, than the last and you're, you're going to wear out your tires. If you're riding, you know, tires are, a are an expense. So don't be scared that you don't have exactly the right tire today. You've got another chance. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I would also say like when you, you know, you mentioned got our favorite tires and all, it's a good thing to keep your, your mind open about tires as well, because there's going to be new technologies, new treads, new players on the market. And it's one of the things that has evolved, you know, even though they look very, very similar, there's been a lot of evolution. So if you're just stuck on one spec, one style, one thing, um, you know, you might be doing yourself a disservice by not, not researching it a bit more when it's time again. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. So I'm an old guy back in the 1990s, Dell computer. If anybody remembers Dell was incredibly successful in part because customers could spec their computer exactly the way they wanted it. So but Dell basically had these like beige boxes and you could go online and tell it like what size hard drive you want and how much RAM and all that kind of stuff. So why don't we have the same thing in the bike industry where we can go online, choose from a menu of parts and order the, a bike exactly the way we want it? What's What's holding us back from that? Well, I, I prefer Gateway 2000 back in the day, but Gateway, um, yeah. Oh, I forgot about Gateway. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, you know, it's it's basically the same reason why you don't see Dell doing that anymore. You know, why they're oh, offering ooh. finished um, finished platforms, and there's variation there. You know, there's levels, mm-hmm. there's there's specs that you can choose from, but but it's gone out of favor to to go and do that. And there's you can do that with bikes. You know, you can go to a, some, uh, parts houses, you know, they're distributors for some bikes and some parts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, uh, premium brands that you can, you can choose the spec, yep. but you're choosing from a kit. Uh, you're not going to say like, Oh, I, this is the bearing I want. Yeah. It's not like this is the top bearing on the headset and I want this other bottom bearing on the headset. Yeah. And, what it comes down to is logistics and um, feasibility and um, the reasoning behind it. So there's just not enough reason to want to go in and do all these individual specs and compatibilities. Mm-hmm. And so from a, from a perspective like us, you know, as Marin bikes, as a, as a global bike brand, the logistics of doing a, a custom assembly in our system is just not, uh, it's just not feasible. Mm. And the time that it would take to the, the cost for us would be high. So the final cost would be higher. And then the time it would take to actually get it finished, mm-hmm. you know, get that bike done and get it to you is going to take considerably longer. Mm. So yeah, I would say the other part is, is again, value. So what we're able to do is to bring things to scale and get some benefit, you know, some cost benefits at scale, yeah. um, which we, certainly pass on to the, to the riders. So 
if we go and say like, okay, we're going to blow this bike apart and every, every part is going to be unique. And then we have to have stock and we have to have all of these, you know, like this kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse of, of things <laughs> that we're going to pull from. Yeah. It just doesn't work. And, and that's what we saw, you know, in, in probably the nineties and two thousands, there was definitely more of that, mm-hmm. you know, more of like bring in a frame, but the selection of what you would put on it is, is a lot less. Mm. So like you might have put like a full XT group on your bike at that point and it would have been everything like your seat post would have said XT on it. And, uh, and then like this, you know, this far and stem. So yeah, okay. You've got four levels and you've got a couple things here and, and, you know, logistically still difficult, but not like now where it's like, okay, well, which, which of these, you know, 15 different parts groups do you want? And then, okay, now we've got suspension and this rear shock, that fork and, um, the disc brakes and, you know, this, this rotor. And so, yeah, that the, the offering is much bigger and much more complicated. And, but like I said, in the beginning, you know, we can look at these examples of, of kind of extreme customization that happened a long time ago where people that was fresh to them was having, mm-hmm. having options and having, um, different things they could do with it. And then now, you know, most of that has gone away through, through a lot of companies because of the inefficiencies and yeah. you know, every, everybody got a, everybody got a computer and realized how much they were losing on their, on these crazy programs that they were doing. Yeah. Well, I, I think too, the other side of it is like, you know, I think to myself, oftentimes I'm looking at a build and I'm like, huh, yeah, man, I wish I could like swap out that saddle and maybe get some different grips and, you know, there's that, but then at the same time, like I go, there's like a burger place here in town where you can like choose all the toppings you want on your burger and they've got like 20 different things. But then I always end up ordering off the menu. That's like the Western burger where like they choose like, you know, five or six toppings to go to go well together. And I'm hungry. And so I'm like, just, I'm just, I don't want to make all those choices, you know? So I think, I think you're right too. that like, consumers we may think we want that but then we we look at what's involved in like coming up with the spec and and making all those decisions and it's like let's just trust the experts on this for the most part yeah and obviously you can do it you know you can buy a frame and you can buy the parts and you can piece it together and you know when i was when Mm -hmm. i was in shops that's that was a very common request or, or a common idea is to to custom build a bike and I mean, it's, it's not much different than, you know, buying an old, you know, board and building a, a rot, rat rod or, mm-hmm. you know, something like you're going to be a lot more intimate and familiar with your bike after doing that. But if you're not able to really study a lot of stuff, I mean, it's going to cost you a lot more money no matter what. And then you might run into some incompatibilities that you didn't expect that are going to, you know, frustrate you, take time, probably cost you more. So... And, you know, the other side is like we as the industry, as, as people making mountain bikes, you know, we are testing the stuff and riding it and we're putting stuff together. And we are, you know, we are very focused on trying to make a good product at that price point or that level that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And I would say in general, like most of the industry is doing a pretty good job these days. And, you know, if you have a brand that you identify with and a type of riding that you can do, like you can, you can hone in pretty well. And then kind of like you mentioned, like you might, you know, every saddle is very personal and then tires are based on region and there might be some 
component that you just loved from your last bike that you got to bring over to this one. Mm-hmm. But the value that you're getting by just buying a set bike and, and then upgrading where it's, where you have to or where it's really necessary, mm-hmm. that's way better value than, than buying piece by piece. Like you, you're getting a much bigger discount than you understand buying a full bike together all, all together. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So many, so many reasons why. Yeah. Now, obviously. It does, it does make sense why we have to get the bikes the way that, that we do as complete builds. And yeah, I mean, ask anybody who's ever like tried to build their own custom house or like even the bike builds, man, like half the people I talk to that have gone that route, you know, they ended up just feeling frustrated and, and everything by the end and wishing that they had just, just stuck with a stock build. So Tell us a little bit about how the pandemic-related supply chain issues have altered the way that, that brands like Marin are thinking about bike builds. Are rolling spec changes here to stay, for example? I mean, a lot of brands have, have kind of gotten away with that. You know, they p- consumers are understanding and are saying, oh, well, you know, the website says it's it's got this, you know, crank set on it. It's got a different one, and that's kind of how it is now. Or, or are we going to get back to, to having these, like, set specs that that people can rely on so there, there's always been a degree of interchangeability in specs depending on what's going on and some of it is visible some of it's very visible and some of it's it's not and that's just the nature of of production of you know a bike so you know our, our biggest challenge is a bike is made of of you know, dozens and dozens of different parts, and they are made of different things uh, themselves. So on one bicycle, you've got uh, something that's made out of metal, you've got something that's made out of plastic, you have uh, injection rubber stuff, you've got textiles like your saddle and, and the way that's made. So the the type and, and the kind of spider web and complexity of, of these materials and suppliers, um, suppliers to suppliers that, that also have their own supplier. Mm-hmm. So that, that spider web blows out really fast, especially when you look at what's happened in the last couple of years. Yeah. So to your question, I think we have all gotten a lot better at running changes out of necessity. It's the struggle that we've all been going through is basically to, to maintain the value and to maintain the spirit of the bike through having to make some changes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in the, the most simple way to look at it, like we make changes so that you can still have your bike. <laughs> if yeah. we don't make those changes, if we just, you know, stick a, a stake in the sand and say, that's it. Like we're not going to move on, on whether this, you know, this spoke is, is a little bit more silver, a little less silver. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Then, then there would have been a lot fewer bikes uh, produced in the last, last couple of years. Even fewer. Oh man. Even fewer. Well, don't, don't mistake it. There's been more bikes produced in the last couple of years than, uh, than ever in the history of the world. Wow. It's the consumption is, um, is huge, hmm. which has also pushed it. So, I mean, it's, I think, I think a lot of the people who have been riding for a long time, they think like, Oh, there's a, a major shortage. The shortage is based on the demand situation. Yeah, it's not supply so much. Huh. Yeah, at the beginning it was a lot of supply, but the way that supply has ramped up and the amount of bicycles produced in the world in the last couple of years is is huge. Huh. Yeah. So but anyway, yeah, there's still it's still hard to get what you want. And like <laughs> even even for me here in the in the belly of the, the industry, 
you know, getting brake pads or finding, finding stuff. It's, yeah, it's, it's harder than ever. So as far as, as far as the, the spec changes go, it'll still exist. And I think based on what we can see today, it's, we're going to have challenges into 2023, you know, well into 2023, if, if not through the year. Mm-hmm. And, um, we're going to do what we can, you know, some models we can't produce because the challenges are so, uh, so much that we can't make it. Other models we can produce, but we need to make some kind of a substitution or a, or a spec change altogether. So you're, you're going to continue seeing that stuff and, and there's going to be more of it. And then in the long term, it's going to go back to the way that it was in the past. Okay. Where we would have to make some change occasionally based on a few things. But for the most part, once things stabilize and once the ability to get the parts goes back to normal lead times and normal planning cycles, then um, it's going to be just, just like it used to be. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, uh, the last question I want to ask uh, gets back to that idea of value and the value in buying a complete bike. So where do customers tend to get the best value when it comes to buying a complete bike? Is it at the low end or the high end or are you kind of getting getting the best value no matter what? I mean, I guess that's kind of your goal, but but really, yeah, are we are we getting more value at one end or the other? So, yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, our, our goal is to build the most value into each price level. But I would say as a mountain biker and as somebody looking at a, at a new mountain bike, where you're going to get the most value across the board is going to be mid to upper mid level, hmm. where you're getting all of the components, you know, you're getting everything and you're getting everything at kind of a mid level uh, of quality and function and feature. Mm-hmm. So, um, what that means, like for us, like when you, um, I would say you really start to get into a, a bike with, with everything at like 2,500 to 3,000 USD. Okay. And what that means, like you're going to get a dropper post, you're going to get a wide range drivetrain, mm-hmm. um, nicely performing suspension parts. Um, the weight is what, you know, is still going to be heavier at that level. And that's something you pay for, you know, over, over, uh, the, the increases, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get a lot for your money at that price point. And then above that, you start to split hairs. So, you know, especially over about, let's say 4,000 bucks, you're going to get very similar stuff with incremental increases. So mm-hmm. slightly lighter, a little better performance, this, you know, an extra knob to turn to adjust this, this fine feature, things like that. So yeah, that's, that's where I would say you're going to really see the most bang for the buck. And it's, I think it's pretty obvious for consumers as well. Like once you get to that level, especially like I said, dropper posts and, and some of the cockpit stuff and your, your, um, some of the stuff that's name brand, that's, you know, easy signal to see like tires and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's where I would put it. And it's, it's the same across other categories. You know, if you're looking at gravel bikes or. Um, or stuff like that too. It's, it's a very similar proposition for everybody. Is that where most of the sales tend to occur too? I mean, is that it typically like the mid range is going to be your best selling model or, or is it just that's where you're going to get the better value? I mean, that's, that's really a sweet spot for us as well, but our biggest selling models are, are on the lower side of, of the price point. Hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's the same for everybody. You know, scale is, Scale is different. So the, the entry level bikes are, are higher volume 
the higher end bikes are lower volume, but they're um, they're higher dollars, higher price point. So, yeah. So you're being a smart consumer if you if you kind of look at the middle, because that's maybe not where it's definitely not where most people are looking. Because yeah, they're they're looking for the cheap one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that kind of mid stuff. You know, there's what my from my experience and just you know seeing it out in the world. There's there's a lot of riders who go. They're not quite sure yet and they go mm-hmm. down a bit. So like if I was standing in a bike shop and I was talking to somebody about these different level bikes, um, that's definitely the point that I would get across is like at this level, you know, once you get up to 2,500 or 3,000 bucks, it, it sounds like a lot right now. But, um, if you get up into that level, you're going to get everything you need and you're going to, you're going to be able to really engage with mountain biking. Yeah. If you get something below this level, you're going to either feel like you're not able to do what some of your friends are doing. You're not able to keep up or just the feature isn't there for riding that way. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to feel like you should uh, be upgrading and upgrading is more expensive than getting those parts already coming with the bike. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's always, you know, it's always been this way. Like when I was a, a you know, a guy standing on a shop floor selling people mm-hmm. bikes, it was, it was exactly the same situation. And then, I, I wouldn't call it diminishing returns above a certain level, but, mm-hmm. um, but what you're getting is, um, there's, there are parts that have some increase in either weight or decrease in weight, increase in, in feature or functionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those increases and those um, weight decreases are marginal and they are marginal all the way up the, the line until you get to the absolute most expensive top-notch stuff. Mm-hmm. So like if you compare a $15,000 mountain bike to a $3,000 mountain bike, um, it's going to be lighter and it's going to have the um, carbon wheels and, and these kind of, you know, some ooh-la-la parts. But um, what you can do on those two bikes is going to be basically the same. You know, those two, those two riders. If you put the same rider on both of those bikes, there's not going to be a huge difference about what comes out of the end. Yeah, yeah. Are you do Do you find that you're successful when you're making that kind of? I don't want to call it a sales pitch, where you're trying to convince somebody that they need to spend, you know, kind of a, a minimum amount to get a bike that they're going to enjoy. Um, because I have that conversation with non-bike friends all the time, neighbors and people. Oh, you're, you're a bike guy. Like which, which bike should I get? And, you know, as soon as you start talking thousands of dollars, they're like stepping back and like, whoa, whoa. And like, no, I don't need anything like that. And I feel like I'm, I'm never able to convince people that they need to spend that. But, but it sounds like, it sounds like maybe you have. I mean, what, how do you get people over that hump? <laughs> I've sold a couple of bikes. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, for me, it was always, um, what kind of person are you? Hmm. Are you the type of person that when you get into something, you totally get into it and you are, um, you just dive in and you become an expert on the stuff and you really, you really, um, get into it? Or, um, are you the type of person who's really gear driven and technical driven and, and you're going to, you're going to be looking at this and studying it and always, you know, picking apart what you do and don't have? Or are you just dabbling in this and you're really not sure? And you're, you just don't know if you're going to get into it, but today, you know, today you're here talking about it because you're interested. Yeah. It's like, you're throwing down a challenge. I like that. That's like a good sales tactic. You're like, what kind of person are you really? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, I've had, I've had quite a few, you know, you, 
you, somebody walks in the store and they're like, I want the most expensive thing. And I, you know, throw down the cash and it's, you know, they, they leave with it. And that's, that's great. You know, as a bike shop, that's, you know, what keeps the doors open. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who's really considering it, you know, maybe they dusted off their bike and they took it out and they rode with their friends and they had fun. Um, but they realized the limitations of their, their current bike and they're here mm-hmm. looking at something. And so that's, like I said, is, is, uh, you know, as a, you know, you better than anybody else. And mm-hmm. are you the type of person who's always going to be picking this thing apart or, um, are, you know, are, are you just like, you get into some stuff, you don't get into other stuff. You're not sure about mm-hmm. this one. Are you wishy-washy? Are you a quitter? Exactly. <laughs> you got to get them to the yes. You got to get them to the yes. That's that's great. Yeah. Well, Aaron, yeah, thanks so much for for chatting and and telling us a little bit about how uh, all these decisions are made by product managers every day and how the mountain bikes that we buy and that we can choose from how they're put together. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, it's great to be here and uh, really enjoyed it. Well, you can find out a little bit more about some of the specific bikes we were talking about at marinbikes.com, and we'll have a link to that site in the show notes. That's all we've got this week. Talk to you again next week.